Joe Hanlon, you're an Irish Jesuit and a theologian, and you have been reading and reflecting on the report last week into the mother and baby's homes in Ireland. What was your reaction? Well, I think my initial reaction was just completely being overwhelmed by it. Um, there was a media outburst, and quite rightly so, when it was issued. And as, as the days have progressed and just listening to the voices of the women and some of the men who were children in the homes reinforces that. You just get a sense of great sadness. And in the lives of these women, they had they suffered great guilt and deeper than guilt, even great shame. There was just a sense that they were nobody. The report itself talks about them being invisible and having no voice. And it was like they were inconvenient, they were unimportant, less important than others. They were put to one side. And it wasn't even that they were actively denounced. There was some of that but it was almost like they were just ignored. They were non-persons. Such sadness as a result of that. And I suppose, you know, you look for good things and the commission's report has been the occasion for people to be able to find a voice and to be able to tell their story. And I think that's very important. And it's a report, I think, that it touches everybody because... Really, a lot of people all seem to know somebody who maybe had a child out of wedlock or who had some relation who experienced that. And and the shame that it was, even in our lifetime, that to get pregnant outside marriage. Yeah, and I mean, a report is good in this sense that it contextualizes the thing and it notes that this was a widespread phenomenon in the rest of Europe as well. Widespread also to the extent that very often at the beginning of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century, the state often turned to religious organizations to look after these women. I mean, up to then, they were simply residing in the poorhouse or the workhouse. But there was this stigma of not being married, of having a child outside wedlock, applied particularly to women. So the report is very clear that the men didn't bear the burden of this, it was the women, and it was a very misogynistic society. And I suppose there are some particular unique circumstances that apply to the Irish context, even if this was something, as I said, that was common throughout Europe, and this stigma of illegitimacy, for example, was common in European countries. Nonetheless, there were particular features that applied to Ireland. And would you see them, for example, as the very close, unhelpful relationship of closeness between the Catholic Church and the Irish state, particularly after independence, when so much of Irish identity was identified with being Irish and Catholic? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, that's the part of the report that's caused most controversy, if you like, because the report itself, when it's apportioning responsibility for what happened, talks first of all about the men involved, either the fathers of the children or the fathers of the the woman who conceived. And then they talk about the state because the state did have authority. And then they talk about the church. But you're right, there was particularly in Ireland that very close symbiosis, if you like, between church and state. 
and it was part of being a new state and it, if you like, characterized Ireland and there was pride in that. So certainly there was authoritarian use of power by the church and very harsh use of power by the church. But there was also acceptance of that by large swathes of Irish society. So whether it be civil servants or doctors or judges or ordinary people, there was a lot of buy-in to what the church was uh, proposing. There was also, of course, as the archbishops of Armagh and Dublin have recognized, the Church of Ireland archbishops, there was a Protestant element to that as well, because while it was common in Europe, as I said, to delegate responsibility for this issue to religious societies, in Ireland, this was, of course, characterized by a rivalry between Catholics and Protestants. And they were both very keen that their own flock, if you like, wouldn't be evangelized by the other. And the Irish state, the new state, the independent state was particularly close to the Catholic church. And this is, as you say, that kind of unhealthy uh, closeness where lines were blurred between church and state. And there's one particular chapter, chapter nine, I think it is talking about attitudes in the social context, talks a lot about that and talks about how dominant the position of the church was. And I suppose just reflecting on it, it seems to me that the church had a huge hand in shaping a culture at the time. Yeah, that's an important point, Jerry. Mm. I think that, because some people, I think some of the, the, the survivors have said, you know, oh, you can't just airbrush it and say it was culture, because I think that's the point they're making, that where does culture come from? There are influences. So say a bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the problem with the report, if you like, the way it's been received, that it doesn't harmonise very well with the prevailing narrative. I think the prevailing narrative would have been that the Catholic Church is totally responsible for this. And like the other reports, it could have presented its findings in a very simplistic way. But I think this, in the end, does us all a better service. It's more nuanced. It says at the start that this is a complex thing. And it would seem that the church, when you look back, the church did have a very strong influence on the culture. And the particular aspect of Catholic church at the time was its skewed relationship to sexuality. So it was almost like that sexuality was an obsession. And particularly, I suppose, the role of women within that. And that sort of sense, there's a lot of talk about premarital uh, relations, about even things as trivial to us now as mixed bathing, of dancing, dance halls, and so on. They're all seen, instead of a celebration, if you like, of God's gift of sexuality, you have it all seen in terms of temptation and occasions of sin and a very suspicious and punitive notion of sexuality. And I think that kind of culture with then the notion of secrecy, confidentiality, silence. So you didn't wash your dirty linen in public. It was kept to quiet corners. And there was that whole sense, I suppose, of that notion of the church being in control of that kind of culture and wanting to protect its own reputation and instilling in people I mean, I'm not saying they were the only factor, 
but there was a powerful influence. And Bishop Paul Dempsey has been very good in that, just saying how powerful the church was. Because there were other factors. There was the economic factor. There was the whole kind of Irish society being quite poor, an agrarian society where inheritance was so important. And if the family, a lot of marriages were arranged marriages, dowry came into it. If the woman was seen to be in some way less than respectable, and of course having a child outside wedlock qualified there, that lessened the value of the marriage, if you like, and it made the inheritance situation much more complicated. And so there was all this kind of thing which the church's attitude played into. Yeah. And so the, the report talks a lot about the church reinforcing or the church reflecting. It doesn't say, however, that the church invented this. It's interesting, though, the sort of language they use. Um, and I think there's a, there's a wisdom to that. Nonetheless, I think one of the things that strikes one as, as you read it is this notion of the way women are regarded. You mentioned there that the almost invisibility of the men who had equal part in this, and then the woman has been seen to bear all the responsibility, which is something you can trace back to some of the early fathers' writings on women. You know, you're the devil's gateway, you're responsible if men fall. I think many women, even my age, our sexual education would have been, you're responsible for how the man reacts. So there was an awful lot of that. It fed very easily then into that narrative of women being ostracized and punished as they were sometimes in those homes and treated in the dreadful way they were for the act of bringing a child into the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think all of what you say, I agree with. And I remember my own mother hinting at it. She was a very loyal Catholic, but a critical one. She used to have questions about things. And I remember her being critical in particular of her own experience of confession. And I think that's where women felt exposed in lots of kinds of ways. For lots of people, confession in the best of times was a bam for the soul. It was very helpful. But there was another side of it that was intrusive and people felt judged. And I think that was very true. But I think it's important to try to, to say why it's important that the commission identifies this realm of culture or attitudes and doesn't simply point the figure at any one institution. Because in my experience, I've had some dealings with trying to respond to the Murphy report and giving evidence at the Royal Commission in Australia about the abuse situation there. And I think one of the factors that liberal educated people nowadays find it very hard to grasp is the force of culture. They think once you've got educated and you're enlightened, you're free from these kind of biases which culture have. And I think if we don't look carefully at the fact that many educated people back in those times and up as far as the 60s, 70s, would have had a blind spot in these particular areas. If we don't respect that, we're then leaving ourselves open to not noticing that we have blind spots, that it's quite possible to be very well educated and to consider yourself quite progressive and quite liberal 
and yet to have areas which are very heavily influenced by the prevailing culture, which as somebody like Bernard Lonigan would say, has elements of progress and elements of decline. And there is this thing of bias in culture. There is this thing of common sense or group bias where it's almost by definition not noticed, but we go along with attitudes which are very destructive and which lead to very destructive outcomes. So I think the commission is doing us all a great favor, even if it's at the expense of being more popular, if you like, and people saying, oh, it diffuses responsibility too much and it would be simpler if it just pointed the finger in one way. I don't think life is like that. And I think we've a lot to learn from the way in which it carefully goes through the social history of the time, the cultural history of the time, the international context of the time, and tries to disentangle that because it's that world we live in today as well. And we can be quite sure there are blind spots in our own responses and we should be open to those, I think. And I think one of those blind spots that has been revealed of late has been the Me Too movement where the unconscious sexism and sometimes conscious sexism right up into 2020, where women have had to speak out about the way they have been treated in a patriarchal society. And I think that's one of the big things that comes out of this report, that the model that has been imposed, if we look at patriarchy, that it favours hierarchy, and that in that hierarchy, the people who always suffer most are women and children. Would you agree with that, Jerry? I would agree with it. And it's one of the clear ones. I mean, I think racism is another one in America. You can see the way that's been brought to the fore. We're very well aware of the whole attitude towards the environment that we have. You know, it's becoming more conscious. I think in Ireland, the uh, mortality rate among travellers, among ch traveller children, for example, is another area. Direct provision is another area. But we need to learn from these things and we need to learn how best to unmask hidden biases that are in our culture. And I think that's something that the Catholic Church in particular has a lot of learning to do. And if it does the learning well, it's coming from such a low base at the moment, particularly in countries like Ireland. But if it does the learning well, it can be a tremendous sign to civil society as well, because this is rampant in in society at the moment. So I think Pope Francis, when he talks of reimagining the church and talking about a church where there's more open debate, more open discussion, where there isn't this secrecy and silence and confidentiality pushed to a perverse degree. I think that's very helpful. And I think once you unleash that dynamic, then you have to be open to following it in a direction maybe that the person who unleashes the, the dynamic isn't that comfortable himself, maybe. And I think Pope Francis has done a wonderful service to the church in talking about this synodal church he sees, which is, has this culture of open debate, because it's a way of trying to bring to the light those hidden corners of a culture which can remain too long hidden. But I think particularly with regard to the whole issue of women, exactly along the lines that you suggested, going back to early times, the church has been part of a very patriarchal culture. 
it's now arguably lagging way behind secular culture in learning how to treat women with dignity and equality. And I think the Pope himself then, who's trying to steer this debate and trying to lead in the way that we might be discerning and not simply following in a populist kind of way, he may well, as it happens in, in the gospel, I always think of that gospel passage. I've experienced it a lot in my own life in recent years, just as you get older and your health isn't great, where Jesus looks at Simon Peter and he asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter gets impatient and he says, you know, I love you. And then Jesus says to him, when you were young, you got up and you went where you wanted. But when you're older, somebody else will tie a rope around you and lead you in a direction that you might not have wanted to go. And I think the Pope is humble enough to know that that can happen to him too. And, and certainly it seems to me, looking at it from a theological point of view and honouring the sense of the faith in which the Pope is so keen to honour as well, there are no good theological reasons arguing against the ordination of women. And it's a kind of symbolic one, if you like. It shouldn't all come down to the ordination of women. But nonetheless, most Catholic women, when you get talking, I go around talking in different situations, they will always bring that up because they'll say, with all this talk of equality and complementarity, in the end, it means nothing if you don't think we're worthy to be priests. Of course, we want to avoid clericalism, and of course, the priesthood has to be reimagined. But I think there's something there that's real. And the Catholic Church, if it wants to be taken seriously, if it wants to honor the memory of these mother and baby homes, if it wants to really follow through, has to allow this discussion to go where it goes. And I would be uh, very hopeful that that will happen but I don't think it's a million miles away from what we're talking about, these issues about the role of women in the church. And there were some good statements made by the hierarchy, apologising and taking on the blame and saying we have to accept the role, and you mentioned there some of that. But when they move on to talk about the cherished nature of women and how equal they are, it can ring hollow if the church seems to institutionalize some kind of difference based on gender. Yeah, there's been lots of very good statements, including from the Pope himself, about the equality of women, about the way in which women have, for example, given leadership during the COVID crisis and so on. But it does ring hollow then if you draw the line within the church itself in a way that seems arbitrary. I mean, it's okay if you draw the line and you're saying that God said this or Revelation is clear about this. But any of the arguments that have been advanced to ban women from ordination seem quite threadbare. And I suppose that's really where we as men, particularly in the church and bishops and religious leaders in, I think, of our own curias, that we really need to ask ourselves, how can we begin to change that culture? I mean, I think it has started to change, to be fair. And I think it will go on and change. But there's no room for complacency here because we have become captive to something that 
deep down, if we're doing our discernment properly, we're not at peace with. And so many of the bishops I speak to privately, who are good, good people, would admit that. None of them are going to go out and bat publicly against the ordination of women, except to repeat what's always said by Rome, that the church doesn't consider it has the authority to do this. But then you ask, why doesn't it consider the, it has the authority? Is there anything in scripture? The Pontifical Biblical Commission said back in the 70s, no, there is nothing in scripture. Are there any good theological arguments? Doesn't seem to me there are. So it's just going back again, repeating something which we know in our deep down isn't, isn't right. So, Jerry, looking now at this report, all of Irish society is addressed by it. And we're addressed by the suffering of the women who make the very valid point that it's not something that can just be, well, there's a report, it's over, it's done. What can we do, do you think? Do we need to listen more to the women, to what they want us to do? Is it about restitution? Is it about learning from our own mistakes? And also addressing, as you said, our own blind spots now. There's a lot of responses required to this. Yeah, there's a lot of responses. And to be fair, I think the commission and then the government response and the response of some of the religious orders and the bishops has been good. I mean, there is, first of all, apology. I think that's very important. If it didn't happen, it would be awful. Apology on its own isn't enough. There has to be action. There is talk of redress in different forms. I think that should be followed through on. I think particularly important is there's an enhanced medical card with access to various counselling supports. I think that's very important for women who need it. Some women are surviving very well and have done very well. They won't need it, but others will. So I think there's a multifaceted approach. I think from the point of view, uh, and from the churches, I think uh, Catherine Corliss, the the historian uh, in the West, who from her own independent research was the catalyst, if you like, for this report, She often seemed, and prophets are like that, she often seemed to be quite angry and quite confrontational in the way she presented things. And as I say, prophets often have to assume that kind of tone. Mm. And yet when the Bon Secours sisters came out with their apology, I happened to be listening to the radio when she came on. And she was asked, and you could sense the change of tone in her voice. She was so pleased with what the sisters had said. She wasn't, of course, saying that that was enough, there was more, but you could sense even the tone in her voice. And I think from from the church's point of view, and Pope Francis has been magnificent on this, if you look at the gospel for today's mass, it's the story of the man with the withered hand who's in the synagogue on a Sunday And the Pharisees are looking to see, will Jesus cure him? And will they, as they think, catch him out? And Jesus is so angry with their obstinacy. And there's something about that that captures the kernel of Christianity and captures as well why Eamon Martin, Dermot Martin, why so many people can say, what happened that we got into this situation where we have been so harsh, so rigid, so judgmental, And you meet Jesus Christ and you find that he's so tender, so merciful, so reaching out to those who have problems and who have various situations where they feel shame and guilt. So instead of being on the side of these women who are outcasts, we were effectively 
adding to their sense of shame. So it strikes me that that's the big thing that the church can perform, not just for these women, but for society, rediscover its central core, which is that relationship with Jesus Christ and the mercy and the tenderness and the love that's there, the forgiveness, and bring that as a light to the world. Of course, that will require all kinds of outworkings in terms of finance and protocol and safeguarding and so on. But it's that core, which it seems to me is so important and which people know when it's there and they know when it's not there. I was struck by that this morning, that reading myself. I actually thought I'd misheard it because I'm getting it on Zoom. And I went back to tech. Did it say angrily? Jesus responded angrily because we don't often hear that. We think of the time maybe in the temple, but it is a very good point that there is that a righteous anger that he had about the lack of compassion that they had for this person with the withered hand and how they viewed him. So for the future, Jerry, are you hopeful? And will we look at the things we as a society and a church need to look at? Certainly the church has spoken out on behalf of migrants. Pope Francis has certainly given a lead in refugees, migrants, the environment. Are you hopeful? I am hopeful. And I do think that part of the hope is based in ways in which we can address those blind spots that I've mentioned, because some things are clear enough that we should tackle, if you like, Other things are less clear and we need to have a kind of space where we can challenge one another and bring these blind spots to visibility. I think one of the ways we do that is by talking and listening and and so on. Another way that struck me, I remember Vincent Toomey, whom I always often wouldn't agree with on lots of things, but I did agree with on this. He was looking back on the institutional abuse that occurred in different residential settings and on the clerical sexual abuse. And he raised this idea of ritualizing memorials for these things, also in church settings. He he likened it to the Holocaust Memorial Day, which is held worldwide, but that there should be rituals whereby either through, I suppose, The report talks about that memorialization. Could there be statues and so on? But could there be ceremonies? Could there be fasting and penance? Could there be days on the calendar where liturgy, when it's done well, as we all know, for example, from funerals, has a very powerful effect. And it wouldn't do to have just a liturgy for the sake of liturgy. Some of the church unity liturgies, which we're celebrating now at this time, have become too formal like that. But if we had something that would really touch into that repentance and that kind of forgiveness that's at the kernel of Christianity, and I suppose creative liturgists and artists can help us do that to create something. Because it does strike me that with all the human ingenuity, we are into something here that's very going back to the spiritual exercises, it's like what Ignatius says, the shame and confusion in the first week of the exercises when we realize we are sinners. And in the third week, when we realize that God has suffered in Jesus Christ for our sins and there's great shame and confusion. And yet there's great hope there that Jesus loves us so much and God loves us so much that God is willing to go that far and that love is so deep 
that in a sense, we, we just have to ask for that. And we have to use our human ingenuity, of course, to, to tap into. So I am very hopeful, but I know there's huge resistance. There's, there's always huge resistance. There's the sin of the world, and it's perfectly mirrored, not just in, in human omission and commission, but in cultural, in structural, in institutional sin of various kinds. And that's a huge thing. And we see it in America just today as we're talking, the inauguration is going to happen. And we see the forces that have been unleashed in America. They're not going to just disappear overnight. And they require, in the end, great love, great love with wisdom to draw the kind of sting of evil away and reveal what it is and follow the good spirit. And I, I think as Jesuits and as people who are associated closely with the Jesuit apostolate, that universal apostolic preference about the spiritual exercises and learning how to share discernment can be a great gift at this time to not just our church but to our world. And I think also maybe the hope that the, the women who suffered and the children who grew up and you know the things that can't be undone for them that they may be able to forgive us, to forgive the society to forgive whoever that created that system that they have suffered in so unjustly and that perhaps in that forgiveness that that can unleash a power that allows us all to, to move on but also to create a society in which nobody, no women or children, oh, no matter race, colour, creed or whatever will ever be treated in that way again. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're, it's good to come back to those women. I mean, that's where it starts and that's where it should finish in terms of any discussion because they're so pivotal. And, and just that's why I think I was so moved by Catherine Corliss. She wasn't one of the women, but she's very close to them. And the way in which she represented them, spoke with them, and but the way then she was touched by the apology. And I think that's the way forward. And that gives great energy because shame and guilt can paralyze in the Ignatian paradigm. They don't, they free us because we realize that they're part of God's love and God's forgiveness. And these women are showing us that. And I think we need to stay close to that no matter how painful it feels in doing so. <laughs>